Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, you know, you make plans. We had a plan. <laughs> as, a matter, as a matter of fact, producer Jonathan McPants just pointed out to me that perhaps one of the benefits, if that's the right word, of the news that broke over the night and into the morning about uh, President Trump testing positive and Melania Trump testing positive is that I will no longer have to have a terrible, possibly relationship-ending uh, fight with Lucy Gelman about the Beach Boys, because that would have happened if we had stuck to our, our original scheme that was going to include this list of the greatest albums of all time or something. I don't even remember our original scheme anymore. I do know that this is the news, and we are very excited to have with us today Lucy Gelman, editor of Arts, the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink and a person who was apparently never listened to Pet Sounds, uh, and Mike Pesca, uh, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Mike Pesca is making his uh, nose debut today. I believe he has considerable radio and podcast experience, but this would be his nose uh, uh, debut today. And we thought it would be fun, you know, if Mike just joined in with one of the typical cultural conversations we like to have. And part of that was going to be, and I guess sort of still will be, uh, this Showtime two-part drama called The Comey Rule, starring Jeff Bridges uh, as James Comey and Brendan Gleeson as Donald Trump. Uh, that was sort of the plan. And then all this stuff happened. It would just be weird to try to get through this without um, dealing with what everybody's dealing with today. So that is exactly what we are going to do. But Lucy, Mike, welcome to the nose. Hi. Yeah, there I you still are. Got a lot of, I still got a lot of thoughts on Joni Mitchell. You don't want to hear them? <laughs> <laughs> Could you work them into the rest of this somehow? Is there some way that you can incorporate Coyote into what's happening right now? So Yeah, um, I guess you don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> and something's gone. That was very good. Very quick. I like that. So, yeah, I just want to talk to both of you. And Mike, since you sort of have the floor already. I mean, it's also just worth talking about how a story like this kind of lands on us in this media environment. Um, a lot of people were not up last night around 1, 1.30 when this news started to break. Uh, I guess the networks were having late night specials about it. I didn't see any of them. I was like a lot of people. I did this strange thing that we all do when we get up now, which is to grab our phones. Uh, and then suddenly there's just not only this story, right, but this flood of spin and speculation. And But I'd like to hear from each of you. Uh, Mike, just, you know, in terms of how media told you about this, what happened? I, well, it's so funny that you say how media told me because actually uh, NPR's media reporter, David Folkenflik, who's one of my best friends, yes. and I were texting at the time about, I don't know what, boom, he says, guess what? <laughs> Hope Hicks has COVID. No way. So uh, I switched off the jet game and I do experience it through cable news. And it's fascinating because NBC, Brian, Brian Williams has that 11 o'clock show. He's hanging around. So even though he's not Lester Holt and the main anchor, he confers all the authority of NBC News and they go all hands on deck. CNN, same thing. Don Lemon is there. White House correspondents are there. They get... Um, Carl Bernstein in, they get Brian Stelter to tell us, don't forget the president lies. So they have a full team. 
over on Fox, they stick with their overnight anchor, who I looked up, a uh, woman named Ashley Stimson, I think. Not a blue check mark on Twitter, no shade. She, uh, her bio claims she was um, Miss Missouri 2010. I looked it up. It's true. But they, they only have phone guests. They don't really play it like this is the you know earth-shattering news that it is. I, I can't quite understand how they reacted or how that, why they underreacted. But right. that's I, how I think I to be fair, it. to be fair, at the end, they had Adam Gaze, the coach of the Jets on to talk about it. But uh, <laughs> and, and he was in studio. Um, so, Lucy, yeah, Lucy, yeah. how about you? I mean, how did you even learn about uh, this thing? Oh, Lucy might be muted. Uh, so we'll come back to her in just a second. Lucy, can you hear me? No, nah, she can't. So, uh, you know, uh, this, Mike, is. Uh, you, you know, you reference the idea of somebody saying, well, the, the president often is not truthful. And, you know, that's the thing that really is still kind of sticking with me is how many people I've just encountered on social media or in conversation today who just don't know whether they can safely put their foot on this rock in the middle of the river. There's just an mm -hmm. awful lot of people mm -hmm. who who have various explanations about why this might be offered up uh, untruthfully for other purposes yeah and whose fault is that as uh, a researcher named peter pomerantsev wrote the title of his book he goes inside russia and he figures out how propaganda works and the insight is the title nothing is true and everything is possible so propaganda is not trying to convince you of this fact or that fact not necessarily they're just trying to get you to question all facts who's who's doing that who's propagating that i mean yesterday on the gist I, I talked about a study that 38% of the disinformation around coronavirus comes from President Trump. He's the literal number one purveyor of what the researchers called the infodemic. So we shouldn't be questioning or we shouldn't be puzzled or maybe we shouldn't even find it notable that our first instinct is to say, wow, that's crazy. And our second instinct is to say, but is it a ploy? Because he's trained us to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And and I ran it through, you know, I mean, first of all, the the other problem with this is if you're a journalist trying to evaluate the veracity of something like this, you kind of typically will run it through some scenarios in your head, like what would be the upside, what would be the downside, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I also feel like I'm running those scenarios on behalf of a madman, like I, I just like don't necessarily know that he would think the way that I would think about this. Right, and I also think that you know we as people who have uh, uh, public outlets that we want to always have credibility. We have to weigh how much to get into, whether to even get into it. So this is why we're talking about the meta phenomenon, and I get that. But I think on my show, I'm going to at least get into the issue of what is what counts as ethical speculation in this context like i'm glad on twitter that maybe the same kind of people who had you know the muller she wrote podcast or whatever maybe some of these empty wheel type people are going to go hard at what might be evidence that it's a ploy i'm glad that's out there and then both you and i i guess have to decide okay how to give it voice so, so the fact that we're engaged in that, I think it's not only uh, explicable, I think there might be some value to it. Like you don't want to just pretend that it's 1995 and what the White House says is the truth 
or something, you know, really close to the truth. You have to allow yourself the possibility. It's very hard to do it in the most ethical and responsible manner, though, I think. Right. You don't want to be, you know, those people. I forget. There are actually some pretty famous ones uh, who insist that uh, Stevie Wonder isn't blind or Ved Meta, for that matter, isn't blind. Uh, y there's something unattractive uh, about right. denying the validity of a medical condition. But we're not really, t you know, as we we say in so many situations, you know, when we were talking a few days ago, when it was really important two days ago about how to fix the debates, you know, it would always come down to. But on the other hand, one of the three people on the stage is always going to be Donald Trump. And that means that all of the things that you would ordinarily do to fix something probably won't work. Uh, and, and similarly here, you know, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, so many ways is not Stevie Wonder. Yeah, I th uh, I don't know if uh, Lucy's there, but I think that um I think that it's if it's responsible in so many ways to oh, let me restart this thought, which is this: um, Donald Trump has destroyed the norms, and he's engaged in a project where we have to, where he forces us to question everything about government and everything about the presidency and everything about um, taking things at first glance. In fact, not only is this a consequence of what he does. It's why he does it. Um, he talks about the CDC and don't trust the CDC. So if we just take him by the standards he's set that are institutions who we were once thought of as the deep state or people with their own interests, how can we not, by his own training, apply that to the White House? And as we try to dissect, you know, what is his strategy with why he came out and interrupted Biden or what was his strategy with why he told us to you know, inject bleach. There is some sort of strategy there and, and good responsible political prognosticators might be able to articulate that. Now, because health is purportedly on the line, now is exactly when we have to stop. This is the, you know, water's edge of acceptable discourse. I want to do it responsibly, but I think right now the networks are defaulting into pretending this is any old president with a stated dire health concern. And I understand that they have to do that. I wouldn't want them to get out ahead of ourselves. But we also have to carve out something of the let us realize who this guy is and let us pursue the possibility that all is not what meets the eye. Right. We're still troubleshooting, Lucy. Um, so uh -huh. don't feel like you're hogging the mic right now. So. Um, so so yeah and then when you do game it out when you do start thinking about it, it it seems as though it would be a terrible strategy that you know yes it's a distraction from all the stuff about his taxes and finances yes it's a distraction from his very poor uh, performance uh, in the debate yes it would give him some time to kind of lay low regroup see if he can make up some of the deficit that he has in the polls um, yes it might ultimately uh, allow him to claim he was sort of right about COVID-19 if in fact he doesn't have it right now and then can come bounding out onto the stage, you know, in 10 days uh, in order to prove that, you know, I, I sort of get all of that. But I think in general, and particularly now that there's a little bit of a bullet effect and we see that Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, mm -hmm. has it, the president of Notre Dame, who was there at the Rose Garden ceremony uh, with uh, with uh, to be possibly not confirmed very soon, uh, Amy, Coney, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, he's uh, the president of Notre Dame has tested positive. I mean, at this point, you're looking around, you're thinking, well, this is horses, not zebras. The guy who didn't like to wear masks, uh, you know, now has the disease that masks help you not get. You don't really need to make up a zebra story to have this all make sense. 
Right. And the vectors of contagion are following what we know about coronavirus, not what we know about uh, an imagined Donald Trump's um, um, ploy. Right. So like the president of Notre Dame wouldn't be in on it. It's not in his interest to uh, halt the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, for instance. True. Right. So, uh, by the way, we've uh, now uh, we used Mission Control. Ed Harris uh, had a whole bunch of people uh, make a whole new microphone <laughs> for uh, Lucy. And I think we're we're there. Lucy Gelman, can you hear me? Hey, y'all. How are you? And we can oh. hear you. So, are you there? Okay, yes. I, I, and I, I'm going to um, kind of I, just just because I really am sort of interested in how people experience these things in 2020. I, I want to go back to my original question for you. Yeah. How, how did you get this news and 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 how did it land? In other words, uh, did you hear the news in a certain way and then suddenly hear four or five other different sets of speculation about it? Um, I, I don't know if I'd say four or five other sets. So I am, um, I'm perpetually behind on my work um, and was up at one or 2 a.m. and did a bad thing, which is checking Facebook um, and mm. immediately saw and then started like doomsday scrolling. Um, and, and I saw kind of a, a couple of different reactions. I will say I saw um, like unbridled glee that I thought was actually um, like kind kind of inappropriate. I mean, I, I feel like we all in this country have data breached ourselves to the point of oblivion. And so if the NSA is going to find out something, they've probably already found it out. But at, at the same time, I was seeing people say like real, really uncharitable things uh, that maybe other folks are feeling or thinking, but not saying. Um, so I saw that. And then almost immediately, like I, I would say definitely by 2 a.m., I was seeing people, people who I think of as generally reasonable human beings um, say, this is a hoax. Uh, this isn't true. Trump is just saying this and then going to come around and say, oh, it was like a bad cold or a bad, bad flu. And the media is the media of, of which uh, both Mike and I are members um, is, <laughs> is going to pivot and uh, and it's going to be all Trump all the time. And there's going to be a huge swell of nationalism to come out of this. I saw um, a political scientist who I respect very much say this is just a reason for the debate next week to be canceled. Um, and, and so I kind of I feel like even though, of course, we know uh, logically that Facebook's algorithm uh, gives you a very small sampling of people. And usually it's, it's kind of an echo chamber. Um, I, I feel like I got it all. <laughs> um, compounded by the fact that it was like my sleepy brain, right? And so, so I went to bed and then um, this morning when my partner woke up, told him, and that was like a whole, like, it was like resetting the clock and having to go through that all over again. Well, you know, to the point, to Lucy's point about uh, we've all data breached ourselves to a fairly well, Mike, that's the other reason that I think that this can't be a hoax. Not that Donald Trump ever seems to have to pay the same price that anybody else would for things that, that he gets caught doing. But, you know, if you did do a hoax like this and there was, you know, uh, anybody else, uh, anybody who knew about it, who suddenly had second thoughts or as people, I mean, this is a very leaky White House, both anonymously and with like former Mike Pence staffers just coming forward and, and spilling their guts. I mean, this would be a huge risk uh, to assume you had a watertight conspiracy. Yeah, I agree with you. But right now, electorally and by his behavior in the debate, he seems like the kind of person who wants to uh, engage in a huge and risky beha behavior. But I, but I agree with you. 
Um, the more that comes out about, I think this is the the best argument against it being a hoax, the more that comes out about other people, other donors, other people in contact with the people he was in contact with uh, acquiring the virus, the less it becomes just the president making it up, the less uh, likely it becomes. Yeah, I, I, yes, I, I agree. They're just the 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 cascading dominoes here. And so, I mean, uh, I should say that, you know, typically the nose during over the course of the week, when we're talking about things, people will often bring up political subjects, stuff in the news. And I always say, well, no, this is really kind of a culture episode. And I'm breaking the rule in every possible way <laughs> at this point, uh, because this story just, you know, it, it demands so much attention. And and Lucy, one of the things that, um, and, and Mike in particular, I think on Twitter has been documenting this pretty well, one of the things that probably is significantly in jeopardy is not merely the October 15th debate, but in the days leading up to it, the plans to try to confirm Justice Amy Coney Barrett. It's starting to look like maybe uh, her Saturday Rose Garden event might have been one of the initial spreader moments. Mike Lee comes away from it. The president of Notre Dame comes away from it. Uh, they test positive. She meets with Mike Lee three days later uh, in his office after the event. But, you know, here we are looking at a thing that was going to be a big part uh, of the next uh, couple of weeks. And you kind of wonder, like, who else is going to be sick before that even gets going? Yeah, that's right. I, I don't know if there was a question in there, but yeah. Well, I, I'm just I, I interested in right. your reaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. I think it's a time of, it already felt like there was a lot of doom and uncertainty, um, at least for me, around this around this time of year. And, um, and, and now there's more. Okay, we're getting a CNN Chiron that a journalist and a communication staffer through the White House uh, also are positive right now. That's uh, mm. that, that's all we know so far. And in a way, Mike, maybe this is also the fickle finger of fate speaking. You know, I mean, uh, Mitch McConnell has thought for so long that he can make decisions about who gets confirmed and who doesn't and uh, when things happen and when they don't and when rules and conventions are followed and when they are disregarded. Uh, and it is very possible that now that, you know, some other larger power is going to step in and decide a lot of things that will disrupt plans. Yeah. Although I don't know that fate only, I think we're having a selective vision when it comes to fate, right? Think of all the, the, the bad luck or the, uh, what Mitch McConnell would be considered good luck up until now mm -hmm. to put him in this position. Um, all the things that had to go right. And then the one thing goes wrong. And for him, we would, we consider it fate. I'm, wow, we're all, we've all become, uh, we've all become the, decision desk of news uh, headquarters because as we speak i'm seeing these videos of mike lee at the ceremony for amy coney barrett just hugging hugging away maskless mm. and hugging left and right and now we have to do a deep dive on who these people were that he hugged and who else they hugged this is going to be uh, some sort of forensic twitterology the likes of which we've <laughs> never seen well I, I think it was in the unsanitized newsletter i want to say this morning so david dan's um, saying Trump is is possibly the hardest human to contact trace. Um, and, but but I, I, I think that applies to several people in his orbit. Right. Um, and, and it is it is a little funny, Mike. But at the same time, you're like, oh, damn. Yeah, I know. I, just, I, I, I you Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, I just was I'd be fascinated to know if he's come into contact with Baron in the last month. But go ahead. 
<laughs> All right. So actually, that's a good place maybe for us, an uplifting note on which for us to take a really quick break. We'll be back. We're, we are going to see if we can... We, because we all went to the trouble uh, of watching uh, this particular, well, Mike had to do it anyway because he was interviewing everybody connected to it. But because we all went to the trouble of watching this thing on Showtime, we're going to see if there's a way that we can weave uh, it into the conversation that the whole nation is having right now. All right, uh, we are back, and uh, with us are Lucy Gilman and Mike Pesca. Uh, I can't wait to listen to the gist tonight to hear what else Mike Pesca has to say about everything that we've been talking about. But yes, part of our mission this week, and I think in a way we were lucky. There's a way in which this uh, this somewhat um, outdated story of James Comey, uh, circa 2015, 2016, uh, 2017, uh, speaks, has a conversation with the moment that we're in right now, and I, I think we can successfully explore that. But uh, just to quickly, once again, give you a sense, this is an adaptation of Comey's memoir, A Higher Loyalty, written and directed by Billy Ray. Uh, and uh, it stars Jeff Daniels uh, as James Comey because he is tall uh, and uh, Brendan Gleeson for all kinds of complicated reasons uh, as Donald Trump. Uh, let's hear a little clip from the first episode. You're going to hear um, Jeff Daniels as Amy, as James Comey and Amy Simons as Trisha Anderson. Before you play the clip, I want to say I'm pretty sure, Mr. McPants, that Amy Simons is the person who created She Dies Tomorrow, the not very gripping horror movie that we watched for a previous nose. But you can fact check me on that. Let's hear the Comey conversation. Hillary's just been elected. A Republican-controlled House is drafting bills of impeachment before she's even sworn in. Now imagine we find something incriminating. We present those findings to House Judiciary. They ask us when we first found these emails, and we'll be obliged to say that we learned of them a month before the election. And the world will conclude that we actively concealed this from the American public in order to tip the election. Where does that lead the credibility of this institution? Any letter that you put out at this juncture is going to be interpreted by the public to mean that we found new evidence of wrongdoing. If I don't inform Congress on this, I should be fired, run out of town. But boss, what if our doing this results in the election of Donald Trump as president? That I don't remember ever having heard of Trisha Anderson, but watching this thing, I thought, wow, one of the big lessons here is more people should have listened to Trisha Anderson, uh, whoever she was uh, at the time, and also that Jonathan Banks should be placed in charge of some kind of major national security thing because he just he's got the chops for it, just to, even as just as Jonathan Banks. So, um, Mike, I'm going to go to you first. Although I know now you're like best friends with Jeff Daniels and uh, and Billy Ray, and you're probably going socially distanced uh, rollerblading with them this weekend. So you, you you know you may be compromised at this point, but but I just want to get sort of in general. Uh, ask you and and actually I think one thing that's really important here is really within a variance of days how this thing affects you really can make a difference between whether you watched it a week ago two days ago I mean there's so many things that happen that kind of alter some of the reactions we might have to this so you watched it a, a while back but tell me a little bit about just what your thoughts are 
Yeah, I watched it with a pretty firm conviction about what I thought of James Comey, which is a lot of that doesn't mean it's black and white. My thoughts are a lot of ambivalence. Um, and I think it was very clear that this was, as it was an adaptation of his memoir, this was the sort of movie that Comey didn't literally necessarily have to give his blessing to, but he was lightly consulted and you know that he would uh, have liked the portrayal. A couple of telling things um, that even if you, you don't have to watch all four hours to know that it's pretty much on Comey's side, but to some extent doesn't work because of that. Uh, Billy Ray, the director, told me that um, you know, as we know, James Comey's decision to disclose the investigation in day, days before or days before the election, that's not what uh, threw the election to Trump. I mean, that's not true. I'm not saying it was, but it's an overdetermined result. And there's no way you can disprove that, you know, Comey's uh, blurting out that he's not bringing charges didn't have a big effect. And he could have chosen not to do that. But Billy Ray at least asserted that he's blameless okay so we're watching a documentary from someone the creator of which assumes he's blameless but the big thing is just casting just casting jeff daniels and when you do that when you cast this guy who's in the tradition of uh gregory peck who also played atticus finch right and and someone like jimmy stewart and maybe if you can't get tom hanks for a sympathetic role or you need a taller blonder tom hanks you get jeff daniels you're saying something and the, the word that you're saying is decency i think Jeff Daniels just cannot play a serial killer. He always emotes decency. He always brings his past associations with him. And so when you do that, you know that you're getting a Comey who is going to be portrayed as fundamentally decent. I think Daniels did a good job, but that is the Comey we got. All right. Although Jonathan McPants is pointing out that neither Gregory Peck nor Jimmy Stewart ever did a pooping scene like in Dumb and Dumber. So uh, <laughs> so there's you know, there are some variances here. And also, as I declared to all of you, I mean, I was so annoyed by the series, The Newsroom and by the role that Daniels played that I don't quite have that set of uh, of unalloyed admiration and affection for him. But but Lucy, just in general, I know that you well, actually, just give, give us a sense of how this landed on you. And then I think, you know, we really I think it's will be very interesting to pivot from there to um, some of the depictions in this and, and maybe how they bump up against the present moment. But Lucy, overall, how sure. did this go for you? Yeah, uh, I thought it was wretched. <laughs> I, I really did not enjoy I mean, part of it, part of it is any context in which I have to interface with um, 46 minus one or like in anything in his orbit or anyone in his orbit, um, it, it, it is a little bit of a trauma um, anymore. But but also the main thesis, and I think Mike touched on this, um, the, the main thesis of this is flawed because the thesis is Comey is decent. He's a decent dude. And, um, and, and I disagree with that. But I, I didn't think it was very good. And I thought it reduced um, probably like one of the most cataclysmic moments or, or the beginning of one of the most cataclysmic moments in, in my lifetime to, um, to, to like Comey and mild sexism. And, and that's it. That's it. That was the election. Nothing else. <laughs> well, you know, oh, I, and horrible, I, I, horrible and very reductive uh, depictions of, not that I have great sympathy um, for Russia, um, but, but just very like, what you're like clinking vodka flasks on 
on the National Mall. And yeah, those, those okay. two kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern guys. Yeah. <laughs> they are. That, that, those are underwritten parts, uh, even within the scope <laughs> of this particular uh, movie. You know, I did think that I'll just defend it a little bit and say that I initially was bored and and I was feeling as though that this so many things have happened since then. I think I I, I compared it to watching Citizen Kane in England in the middle of 1943. Well, this might be a pretty good movie, but it's just I have a whole bunch of other stuff on my plate right now. Um, but I did think, you know, stuff like even the domestic stuff, of, you know, Comey, the first people that he really has to kind of face after he's done these things, and particularly after Trump has won the election, uh, is his wife uh, and his four daughters. Uh, and, you know, they're really mad at him uh, and they're blaming him. And, you know, some of that stuff, I thought it kind of. Uh, it, it intrigued me. But um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the depiction of Trump, uh, the portrayal of Trump by the Irish actor Brendan Gleeson. Uh, I've long believed that the person who should play Trump at some point is, in fact, Brendan Fraser, partly mm. because Trump has that quality of somebody who hasn't fully participated in civilization. Like you feel like he's never had a dog, you know, and he probably doesn't know any songs after Elvis except the Kanye ones he's been forced to learn. And there's just sort of a sense in which he just is, you know, he's been very involved with himself and not much else. You know, and Brendan Fraser in, in two different movies, Encino Man and Blast from the Past, have played these people exactly that kind of person, a person huh. who's been isolated from civilization and then has to learn about it kind of, you know, in, in fast order. He's got a good body type, too. But anyway, that's just me. I wanted to get that off my chest. But Mike Gleason, this is I don't know. I, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with the performance that Gleason gave. And, and I'm wondering what you're thinking about it. If we're going to cast famous uh, cinematic cavemen, which is what you're talking about with uh, <laughs> Frazier, why not Ringo Starr, who was in Caveman? Uh, you know, it'd be good. You know, it'd be a good Trump is Vincent D'Onofrio, just because he's a good actor and kind of tall, and mm -hmm. the character he played in Men in Black, who, you know, infected by the outer space bug. That is a little bit of the Trump fumbling, stumbling <laughs> around. It's impossible, right? It's impossible to play Trump. What the What's the line between um, an impression and a performance? But I think there were things there that Gleason did that were a performance, that were embodying a character. And some of those weren't exactly his manner of speech, but it's physicality. I just think how he used his body to intimidate, how he, uh, you could also see where his attention would go or not go. So you got an inkling or at least an insight. That's maybe what a great performance of someone we think we know so intimately could do. Give us an insight as to uh, what this character, if he is a character, what he might be thinking. I do think, though, I didn't hate the movie. And I'll tell you why. I've read the Comey book. I've I read, I interviewed the uh, uh, Peter Strzok, who wrote his own book. Um, so many Washington Post stories and New York Times stories and New Yorker stories. And I just think there is a benefit to see it in a different form, in non-written form, in an acted out as if we were in the room form. And most of that, from what I know, and I think it's pretty deep, um, there, there, was, there were moments that really didn't jibe with reality. Yes, they portrayed the assignation between Lisa Page and Strzok in a way that was pretty salacious and I thought also pretty rude to those people. They kind of uh, trampled over their, their privacy while taking so many pains to portray Comey in a perfect light. But I think it had some value, you know, but you have to be of the mindset that that's the sort of thing that might be interesting for you to see. We're going to play a clip in just a second here, Mike. But while uh, I'm talking to you about this, I think I'm correct about this. I did wake up this morning and I saw all this information and I was jumping around in social media and the 
lorazepam hadn't worn all the way off anyway. And so I could be wrong about this, but I think you were the person who made the point that one of the reasons this whole moment that's happening right now is problematic for Trump is that his name and the word obese uh, are going to be mentioned over and over and over again in terms of comorbidity <laughs> with, with COVID. Uh, and it, one of the things yeah. that happens in this movie is you really do see him swilling down a lot of whipped cream and, and you know, McDonald's products. It is true. I made that point. But then I heard on the BBC that obesity itself is not a comorbidity. So I felt a little bad that I put it out there that it is mm. legitimate to talk about uh, Trump's obesity. But, you know, CNN has talked about Trump's obesity and the media is not going to not say Trump's obesity and Trump and obesity and obesity and Trump are probably going to be say, said in a lot of ways, an obesity number of ways. Right. Well, when the NSA goes over this tape, they're going to certainly feel that. Uh, all right. Before Lucy goes, I, just to hear a little clip uh, so people can uh, hear a little bit what Gleason sounds like. Uh, this is the two leads, uh, Gleason and Daniels, in their respective roles. One thing I never had to think about in the Trump organization, because I did so much myself, you know, people think we were so big, but truth is I did everything. But now I have to rely on people. I have all these idiot advisors around who think they got me elected. You know who I actually listen to? TV people. Because they gotta get ratings every day. White House advisor can guess wrong, still keep his job. Not the TV guys. A lot of smart people in that business. Well, you can rely on me, sir, to tell you that- I need loyalty. I expect loyalty so, uh lucy gelman uh you're listening to gleason was he a credible trump for you yeah sure um <laughs> I, I mean i i i think what gleason gets right in this role i i hadn't thought about um you know who who i would cast because i would not have made this movie um but but i think what gleason gets right in this role is Trump wants to be like a bad uh, sort of mob boss, right? And um, I, I think, and even this is a little inside baseball, but in the movie, the Gleason as, you know, portraying Trump, Trump says, you know, Alec Baldwin comes on TV and he makes me look like a buffoon. And this this was not a parody. This was, I, I think Gleason really was acting. Um and and I think what he gets right is the uh, the mannerisms and the sort of the attempt at intimidation, which which is sort of a buffoon esque attempt at intimidation. But Trump really wants to be this mob boss, I think, and and I see that coming across in the movie. I, I will say just to complete that quote that you cited, he, he says that Alec, Alec Baldwin makes it look like he can't read. And then he says, who does mm. he think wrote all my bestsellers? You know, and mm. we, we all know who we think wrote his bestsellers and it's not him. It's just such, <laughs> it, it's sort of why, you know, he says uh, I'm tested positive for COVID and half the country goes, yeah, well, maybe you didn't, you know, because and there are moments here that are I said, you know, your reaction could be conditioned by a, a difference in days of when you watch it. So watching it after the Times tax revelations, uh, you, there's a moment where we see Trump, and this is just public record stuff, but he at one point says he said no dealings with Russia. He goes, mainly because I don't want any debt. I don't think debt's good. Debt wouldn't be good for me. And well, I mean, we know he's got $420 million of debt. So, um, you know, just watching those things and kind of knowing the truth uh, is interesting. I do want to just uh, get uh, pivot a little bit away from this and say, so uh, Judd Apatow, 
uh, today tweeted, well, we'll find out tonight where the humor line is about this. I assume he's just talking about any late night programs that are live on Fridays. Um, but we're also heading into Saturday night uh, where Saturday Night Live is going to kind of unveil their, their new look and they're back in the studios uh, to a certain degree, I guess. And we're going to see, among other things, Jim Carrey as Joe Biden. But so maybe before we get to that, Mike, I thought Apatow raised an interesting question, which is like, you know, we talked at the beginning about how it, it doesn't seem particularly decorous to, you know, to have any kind of public schadenfreude uh, about uh, about Donald and Melania. But can you get laughs out of it? I predict that the fault line for laughs will be the contrasting with past statements that paint Trump, Trump in a ridiculous light. I mean, that's not that bold a prediction. I predict Stephen Colbert will say something uh, possibly. No, I think he'll say something sincerely. And I think depending on how you look at Stephen Colbert, you'll either take it as sincere or not. I think Kimmel, Kimmel will do the same, say something sincerely about you know, anyone having this disease doesn't deserve it. And then it will be game on in terms of all the things that Trump has ever said to deny the existence and virulence of COVID. Right. We're back to the statistic that you cited at the beginning that, what was it, 37.8% of the wrong information about this has come directly from Donald Trump. Um, right, so, right. Yeah. And Trump's passed 20,000 lies. I just checked. It's 20,000. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, Lucy, how about you? I mean, you know, where, where do you think the, the kind of humor line is here? Yeah, I I kind of agree with Mike. Um, I You know, I think people are going to tread lightly uh, or or maybe a, a little bit lightly um not specifically because of the position that the president is in um but but because this is a deadly virus right um and, and but at the same time i think humor is one of our greatest i don't want to say coping mechanisms but um but but sort of one of our greatest tools and so i'm hoping to see things that are really smart and really snappy um and yeah, I, I mean, I would mostly agree with Mike that it's it's going to be some heartfelt statement and then uh, maybe the line will be crossed. Maybe it won't be. I don't know. I think I have this source right, but I believe it's in the uh, Eddie Murphy episode of uh, Comedians Riding in Cars or whatever the Seinfeld thing is called, mm-hmm. where I think Seinfeld says to Murphy, you know, we think everything is funny. We think mm. everything is potentially funny. You know, it, the, the, there's nothing really that strikes us, those of us who do comedy, as off limits. It's more a question of what the market will bear, you know, uh, how, how much people are willing to put up with. Uh, but in terms of what we think, I mean, I, and I think that's probably true, the people creating comedy they they don't have any compunctions about this the compunctions that they have exist come from third party sources there so um i do want to just talk a little bit about the idea of jim carrey uh playing the role of joe biden we've actually already seen jason sudeikis and somebody that who i really unexpectedly enjoyed in this role i thought woody harrelson was gonna he was so good i, I liked i like so woody harrelson as, as joe biden but so, so lucy you have the floor here um the other person in my house who has some background in political consulting when she heard that she goes that's bad for biden it's bad sure. that they picked carrie what's your thought yeah i i would agree with that i um i remember watching harrelson uh, Joe Biden. And, and it was either the first or second time. And I watched it with my younger brother and we were howling. We were just like laughing so, so hard. Um, and I, I just, for me, no one has um, sort of hit that same mark. And I don't think Carrie is, is going to 
um, do a do a great job. Frankly, I think Maya Rudolph is going to be fantastic as Kamala. Well, we already um, know we've seen we've seen that. Right, yeah. we know that. Right, um, but but she will continue to be. Fa- I'm, I just think she like. I mean, she she could be playing like a stick on a tree, and and she would do a really good job. Um, but yeah, I don't have high hopes for Carrie. Mm. I saw her do a stick on a tree. Uh, it was a Beckett revival, and she was really oh, good. Yeah. But um, <laughs> although, well, actually, before we get to Carrie, Mike, you know, I, I absolutely share uh, Lucy's unbounded admiration for Maya Rudolph doing pretty much anything. Although there is kind of a shift here on the ground, right? So the last time she did Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris was this kind of opportunistic sort of soi-disant hip aunt you know the aunt who will sell you give you some pot and then get you busted for it or whatever her joke was but there was a little bit more room i think to elbow uh kamala harris in the writing and in the performing than maybe there is right now yeah that's true although i don't think saturday you know when saturday night live decides that these are the things these are the two or three traits that we're going to exaggerate um, unless the candidate really himself or herself shows different traits or traits that we hadn't thought of, I, I find that Saturday Night Live doesn't shift based on you know the whims of the pu- or the desires of the public or even um, their own politics, right? So I think usually because they're they're primarily going for humor, not to make a point. Their humor is definitely bounded by what they think, you know it's clear that the writing staff is not, you know, going home and watching Fox news or subscribing to QAnon theories, right? It's, we know where they're coming from, but also how they define the humor here, here are two or three of the personality traits. And I think those personality traits are still on display with Harris, even though the stakes are different. I do have to say, you know, it's, it's one of those things where Kamala Harris, uh, at Maya Rudolph is Kamala Harris is great. And of course, Tina Fey as Sarah Palin was great. So th- there are these exceptions, but I don't like the trend of always having to stunt cast and go away from the actual cast, which is a large burgeoning cast. You know, give Alex Moffat the chance or give Mikey Day. Why can't Mikey Day play? I don't even know if he's back this year, but he's good. Why can't he play Joe Biden? See what you got. There's nothing about Jim Carrey other than the fact that his name Jim Carrey that screams uh, Joe Biden to me, just as there is nothing about Michael Cohen that demanded that uh, Ben Stiller played him. You could have cast that from the cast. No, I, I, I agree. And actually, to this day, I miss uh, Jay Farrow, several of Jay Farrow's impersonations, and especially his Ben Carson. Nobody will ever be Ben Carson. To, <laughs> I mean, the, way, the way he would kind of wind his hands together in this strange little uh, manner, I really liked a lot. But, you know, I think with Carrie, probably the worry is that Carrie does things so broadly. Um, uh, first of all, I should point out, we have a Papoulian through line. We were doing Jeff Daniels. Now we're doing uh, Jim Carrey. So we've got <laughs> parts of Dumb and Dumber. But... Um, but, you know, Mike, there's a way in which Kerry, uh, you know, the he will probably go after Biden in a fairly broad way that may not redound to Biden's credit. Yes. Although I'm trying to think what the other than the the statements and trying to get the voice right. I don't know exactly what the things are about Biden that you jump on and exaggerate. There are a few. There are catchphrases. But can anyone do it? Can anyone say, here's the deal? And put in some sort of uh, contact lenses that make the eyes look, you know, a little washed out. I don't know why we need Carrie to do that. Yeah, probably not. And, and to your earlier point, by the way, those of you who have read 
Al Franken's uh, Giant of the Senate book. Uh, he talks a lot about how the politics of political humor in Saturday Night Live go, and they are very centrist. I think he sort of says Jim Downey is, who's sort of the author of an awful lot of this stuff, is you know very uncomfortable with there being a particular political point of view or an enforced liberal slant or, or something like that. So, so yes, uh, yes to all that. Uh, we we need a break, I'm being told, uh, and we're going to, on the other side of this, make some recommendations to you. So let's do that. Lucy and Mike will be right back. A few James Comey, I've got nothing else to say. I've got a bad head cold that just won't go away. So a few James Comey. Just seriously. All right, we are back. Uh, I have to thank Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making everything work and making it possible for me to not be in the studio. Also, not in the studio, thanks to Kat Pastor, as Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this episode. Uh, we will be back next week with a whole raft of shows, but the schedule's all complicated and I forget how it goes. Uh, maybe somebody will. <laughs> Somebody may slack me that information before the show's over. But Leah, let's make some uh, recommendations here. Lucy Gelman, would you like to go first? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, so I have two quick recommendations. The first is an oldie but a goodie from the poet Ross Gay. It's called The Book of Delights. And it's not uh, actually a book of poetry, although he has several of those. It is literally a book of delights. He wrote uh, One Delight Every Day for um, I think a year and it's uh, it's kind of what what the world needs right now maybe um, and and then the other is from nose regular Brian Slattery and his band the Moonshells. they have released a new album called House of Air it's available on Bandcamp if you look for the Moonshells. Um, and it's it's a really really good album um, so I recommend both of those things well recommended Mike Pesca how about you um, I'll, I'll give you a uh, shotgun blast of a bunch of recommendations. On Netflix, there is a series that kind of disappeared a little bit. It is called Love on the Spectrum. It is about uh, Australian kids, you know, teenagers, maybe even early 30s, trying to date. Uh, they are on the spectrum of different, uh, you know, it is the spectrum is a spectrum. They have different degrees of uh, either autism or Asperger's. It just, it's delightful and it's a tonic against if you hate regular dating shows. But now, let me get to podcasts. I'll talk about two big categories. I love listening to conservative podcasts when they're rational, and there are a few more than there used to be. I'll rank them in order, coming in fourth. The Dispatch, they often have too many. This was the one started by some former Weekly Standard people, and Jonah Goldberg is a big voice behind it, also David French. Their podcast is good, but they have too many people talking. Four is too many. Uh, the second best podcast among conservatives, they're not really conservatives, is The Bulwark. Charlie Sykes, just an excellent radio host. He used to be conservative. Now, I would say he's centrist. And the best conservative podcast for real conservatism is still the Editor's Roundtable National Review. You might not agree with them, and I often don't, but especially Charlie Cook is an eloquent, eloquent guy. And the non-conservative podcast I'd recommend is Fiasco. It's Leon Nafak's podcast. It's only on Luminary. The series this year is about the Boston school integration. It's the best. It's behind that paywall at Luminary, but he is a master. I love that podcast. 
Yeah, Nevek is a terrific. You'll get no argument from me about that. So I'm going to just mention I mention if you wind up watching uh, the Comey rule and then in finding yourself enjoying uh, Brendan Gleeson, although in this house we think he actually may have had to redub his lines just to get Trump's mouth movements right. It seems as though he might have had to go back into the studio and, and redo the lines. But um, but I would recommend The Guard, uh, which is a movie from a few years back that he he does with uh, John Don Cheadle and a, a bunch of other people, and it's it's funny and it's exciting and it's a just a, a great weekend thing. And and I'm being told I should say that it may be racially triggering. Yeah, I guess it probably might be. I don't even know if you could do that movie, make that as a new movie now. But uh, for all of that, uh, watch The Guard. Um, I'll also quickly shout out Parkville Market. I'm really late to the party here, but we now have our own kind of Chelsea Market style thing here in Hartford and its restaurants, and they have just terrific food, and you can get all kinds of takeout, and it's just wonderful. Uh, and I want to mention two great moments uh, in that I liked a lot anyway uh, in the Comey rule. One of them is Jay Johnson's character who says to Comey, Trump can take a beating, but he can't take a punch, and then explains what he means by that. I thought that was a really fascinating observation. And just Holly Hunter as Sally Yates. I don't think that's anything like what Sally Yates is like. But um, but she's really, really funny. And her line when she comes back the day after the election, pretending that she thinks that Hillary has won, is just a, a terrific comic moment in a mostly not very comic series. Hey, listen to the gist uh, when it drops tonight. Listen to all the other gists from this week. From Mike Pesca, so great to have you here. So great to have Lucy Gelman, too. What an all-star lineup. And, yeah, we'll be back next week. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.